Doug Cordell takes Snap down Highway 5 to the city of big dreams. I moved to Los Angeles on a bright November day in 2007, landing at the airport almost to the minute when the Writers Guild went out on strike. That wasn't the plan. The plan was to escape New York, rent a sweet little place in the hills, and make some easy showbiz money. But the strike threw a wrench into things. Big payday scriptwriting gigs fell through, and I was forced to look for somewhere cheap to live. I ended up in a one-room apartment in Hollywood, in the shadow of the 101 freeway. My first night there, a water bug as big as a date scuttled across the carpet. A flashback to the Lower East Side. My new neighbors were a 40-year-old skateboard punk, an old man who wandered the halls in his bathrobe, and a haggard-looking Wonder Woman impersonator. The strike cast a pall over the whole town. Even non-guild work was hard to come by, as union writers scrambled for the low-paying animation scripts I usually survived on. Eventually, I was forced to look for a job, my first in years. At the beginning, I took a casual look-and-see approach, casting around the internet for something interesting. But as my bank account dwindled, I adopted more of a scorched-earth strategy. I cobbled together a resume that hid the gaps in my employment history behind a razzle-dazzle of font changes and action verbs. I also squeezed references out of people I hadn't spoken to in years, a few of whom greeted my calls with a vaguely annoyed, Who is this? I sent emails in response to almost anything. Copywriter, outreach director, youth development coordinator, tutor, tour guide, assistant to the outreach director, halfway house bed monitor, crew member at Trader Joe's. After two or three weeks of this, I began to wonder if there was something wrong with my computer. Then I got a nibble from a healthcare workers union looking for a communications specialist. By then, I had reworked my resume several times, and I hadn't kept track of which inflated version of myself I had sent along. But after an exhausting phone grilling by a recruiting officer, I was invited for an interview. At a grim building east of downtown, I was interrogated by a series of earnest activists and union hacks. They wanted to know that I was in it for the long haul, passionate about their mission, excited about being part of the team. The thing about having no money is... You'll say anything. And I did. Over and over. I was called back for a follow-up session with an advisory board. And a few days after that, a writing test. I was spending so much time at the place, I felt as if I already worked there. Increasingly desperate about money, I even convinced myself that I really wanted the job. Maybe it'd be nice to be part of a team, I thought. Lunches with the gang. Joking around the office. Dental insurance. I was asked back for a final interview with the Big Cheese, the statewide head of the union. I figured it was mostly a formality at that point, that he just wanted to see that we clicked. So I laid it on thick, throwing in some regular guy banter and cracking a joke, something to establish my leftist cred when he asked me where I saw myself ten years down the road. I'm like Stalin, I said with a wink. I only make five-year plans. The next day the recruiter called to say that they were going in another direction. By now, I was hand-washing clothes in the sink to put off trips to the laundromat and skipping haircuts. 
I found myself taking note when an item in the paper listed places where homeless people could get free meals for future reference. My back to the wall, I developed a feral alertness. I became acutely aware of everything around me and rated it all in terms of getting money. One evening, I went with a friend to a party in the Hollywood Hills. It was in honor of a young writer, the son of a famous cowboy playwright. The house wasn't enormous, but it was perched high with a $10 million view. The cowboy playwright wasn't there, but some of his contemporaries were, all of them carrying an air of hippies with money. How can I separate these people from some of their mysteriously obtained income, I asked myself. That's an original Rouché, my friend said, of a small painting on the wall by the bathroom. Really? Oh yeah, he said. I saw the painting with new eyes. What if I walked out with it, I wondered. They're all so stoned they probably wouldn't notice. I realized, though, that as the interloper at the party, I'd be the obvious suspect. My friend wandered off and I stepped into the vacant study. On shelves above the desk were the usual knickknacks, a pendulum, a crystal statuette of a dancer, silver frame photos of wrinkled villagers somewhere, and at the far end, partly hidden by an antique tobacco tin, a pocket watch, also antique, probably white gold. That was something I could easily slip into my jacket, something that wouldn't be missed for some time. I glanced over my shoulder, then gave the room another scan to see if I was missing anything better. That's when somebody grabbed my elbow. All right, let's go. What? Let's go, my friend said. If I want to get a parking spot near my house, we have to leave now. Oh, okay, I said, still rattled as he pulled me to the door. On the ride into town, I thought about the pocket watch. I knew I had no moral qualms about taking it. I realized, in fact, that the only thing that ever deterred me from crime was a fear of getting caught and the knowledge that I would not do well in prison. Not that most people do well, but I would be especially poor at it. This much I know about myself. But maybe if I could come up with something more removed, something sophisticated and intricate, a financial maneuver, perhaps, with a series of firewalls between me and the actual event. That, I admitted, I would do in a heartbeat. That night, I treated myself to cocktails in a restaurant lounge off Melrose and lingered on a story in the paper about the sketchy security of online auction sites. With the wrought iron railing and dimly lit sconces of the place, I had the feeling of being in a 1970s TV movie where the charming rogue in a wide lapel jacket sips whiskey from a tumbler and prepares to work the amoral landscape of Los Angeles on its own terms. Two days later, a producer called. He was intrigued by something I'd sent him. An idea for an episode of his long-running show. A cartoon for four-year-olds featuring an industrious repairman and his set of talking tools. My take on the material was a little off the formula, he told me. We don't want it to look like the tools have something to hide, he said. But he liked the story. Thought it opened up new terrain for the show. He was willing to go forward with it as long as I was comfortable walking a fine line between incidental misunderstanding and outright deception. I was, I told him, very comfortable. Right on, Doug Cordell. 
We're so happy things turned out the way they did, but I still got to keep you away from the good silver. That piece was produced by Renzo Gorio and Jamie DeWolf.